Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 14th, 2014, and this is episode 1465 of the Survival Podcast. I got a little prod in the butt for some of you guys out there. TikTok. Tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. Do you realize that what this officially means is by the time this weekend is over, November is half gone. Hey, remember, not too long ago, like the year is halfway gone. Not too long ago, it's like the third quarter is gone. There were three quarters through the year. We are 50% through the month of November. We are a little more than 45 days from 2015, the new year. You are either on the sliding scale headed toward greater personal freedom and individual liberty, or toward greater enslavement. There are the only two ways you can move on that scale. You do not get the choice of staying put, staying static. Life will move whether you do or not. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock clicks for us all. But on the clock ticking and moving us along, where are we today with episode 1465? What day of the week is this clock ticking on? Well, you know what it is. It's Friday! 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 That's right, your chance to call in 866-65-THINK, the think line, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. You call that number if you're expecting to hear, hi, you caller, this is Jack. What do you got to say? Uh, you're going to be disappointed. It's a podcast for those that are new to the show. That means it's not on the radio unless you put it there with Bluetooth or something like that. It's a pre-recorded show, so you call in, you get a voicemail, you leave me a message, Follow the formula, and you got a pretty good shot. 30%-ish of calls are getting on the air right now uh, based on call volume. That changes and fluctuates up and down. But the way you do this, you call 866-65-THINK. You wait for the message to explain things to you. And then you make your point or you ask your question in one or two sentences, and then give me your details. Do that, and you're more likely to get on the air. Don't call from a vehicle with the window down to at 80 miles an hour with 280 air conditioning or anything else like that. No weed eaters, no uh, chainsaws, no motorcycles. Uh, and if you're on a cell phone, make sure you have some bars, and that way, you know, you won't sound like at that because then I can't use your call. And there's no one on the other end to say, hey, hey, dude, I can't hear you call back. So make sure there's some bars on your cell phone. Before we get into your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Chef Keith Snow and HarvestEating.com. If you don't think cooking is a prepper skill, you've not lived on MREs for six months. I have. And I'll tell you what, after about three weeks, you start to get really, really creative with what you do with MREs. Chef Keith Snow, though, instead of teaching you to cook with MREs, will teach you to cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking both a life and a prepper skill. He's got a great podcast, a great YouTube channel, a great membership program, great products. I use his stuff to cook with weekly in my house. Uh, last night I did steak. I didn't want to go out on the grill. It was cold, cold, cold last night. Wind was blowing. A little bit of Chef Keith Snow Montana steak seasoning. Got the uh, clarified butter up to temperature in the skillet. Did that. It was awesome. My wife and I had a great steak dinner. Once again, thanks to Chef Keith Snow. He's got a lot of other really cool stuff, especially if you like curries. His new curry chicken powder is awesome. Check it out. HarvestEating.com. Remember, he does do a discount for members of the brigade. Next up today, herbs of a different kind, Western Botanicals. I 
really think that when I found Western Botanicals, I had a blessing come into my life. That's, that's as direct as I can put it. I am not one of these people that will tell you herbs are the answer to everything and supplements are the answer to everything and there's no place for, for modern medications. I don't believe that. I do think modern medications are overused. Um, my biggest complaints in life all are around body aches. Um, all the physical labor that I do outside, standing on my feet for a long time during events and things like that. You know, the other day I planted, I think, 30-odd trees. Yeah, even after the big event, there was that much stuff left to plant. And my left ankle was just swollen and, and what have you. And I used some of their DP ointment on it. And within 20 minutes, the pain was gone. That's the type of thing that's available at Western Botanicals. Stuff to deal with the everyday things instead of using harsh things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which do things like destroy your liver and kidneys. The real people that really care about you, get on the phone, give them a call if you need some help. Their website's awesome. If it's herbal and if it's legal in the United States, they have it. And they have a great membership program called their Premium Membership Program. They sell for 50 bucks a year. 25% off everything. If you're an, uh, a Survival Podcast listener and use the link in their banner on the website, you can buy it for half price. And if you're an MSB member, you get it for free. 25% off everything at Western Botanicals, a $50 membership for free just by being an MSB member. Real quick on the MSB. If you are a member of the MSB but your membership has lapsed, expired, etc., look in your email box. That is all I shall say on that. Everybody else, please consider joining the Members Support Brigade. It's a great way you can help support the show at about 20 cents an episode. If you get done with today's episode and think, hey, you know what, the content Jack's putting out is worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining. You'll get all your money back and more if you're buying things from guns to gardens, practical to tactical, and everything in between, not to mention all the cool free content that's available there and about $200 worth of ebooks you'll get on the first day that you join. Check it out. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members or look at the MSB banner. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders, EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service. I will respond to you with a discount code. All right, with that, before I tell you about the year that was the episode, I have a big, big, big announcement. Some of you have heard, and some of you are still going, what the hell is this thing? Gen Forward is officially coming to the public as a product and a concept on Indiegogo on Monday. And it is going to be something that strengthens families in a way that's never been done before. I believe that it will help fathers be better fathers, mothers be better mothers, I think it will help sons and daughters be better sons and daughters. I think it will link the generations. I think it will answer a deep calling that we have. And I actually think that the individuals doing what you do at Gen Ford, when you find out what it is, doing it a little bit daily, two, five minutes, two to five minutes a day uh, for your family, for your future, whatever it might be, when you'll find out on Monday what it is, if you don't already know, um, will actually help you. Some of the major things that we talk about on the air here about, and you're going to hear from a listener today that talks about the revolution really is you and how it was in his life. I think it will lead to more of that. I am looking to change the world, and I have stopped trying to do it with a jackhammer, and I'm going to do it with something as gentle as a feather. That's what Jen Ford is really all about. It's an amazing new thing. It's been in my head for over a decade, and the time is right and the time is now. Here's why I'm asking you guys to support me. On Monday when I released this on Indiegogo, If we flood it, and our goal for fundraising on it is $25,000, which is something we should be able to blow away, honestly, this community. 
And if we just hit it hard on Monday, what it's going to do is give us a great deal of outside publicity through the Indiegogo factor and basically being a fast mover. And I think we can do that. And that's why I've kind of built it up for a few weeks in advance. Plus, we just didn't have the time to get everything done and get it out any quicker than right now. Those of you who are on the email list, pay close attention to your email box on Saturday. I'll give you almost all the information there is about it in advance so you can be ready for the launch on Monday morning. This is not something we're going to sell out of. You don't need to, you know, if you, if you really want to participate at a certain level, uh, you're going to have 60 days in this campaign. But the more we can do early on, the more we can reach an audience beyond the Survival Podcast and, and Neil Franklin's audience, this is going to be something that when you learn what it is, I want you to call people and tell them about it. The people that you know that you, you, you know really need to be doing things for their family, call them. You don't have to tell them about prepping. You don't have to tell them about TSP. TSP is massively divorced from Gen Ford. Just call them and tell them once you know what it is. Hey, this would be great for your kids. And you'll be able to tell them with a straight face, and you'll know it's the truth. That's what Gen Ford's all about. All right, with that, let us look at the year that was the episode. This is an interesting year, uh, and there's something in it that is so still today the case and is part of American history, you may not even recognize the pattern when I first describe it to you. Let me read it to you. First, I'll tell you the two segments I have today. One is League of the Public Wheel, and wheel is spelled W-E-A-L, W-E-A-L, and it's not a misspelling. And then the former king is captured, which has to do with King Edward IV of England. I am going to read to you League of the Public Wheel from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com for the year 1465. King Louis, the prudent of France. So you notice all these guys have names, the popes, the kings, whatever. Yeah, And they always have these names that make you go, you know what, if you're calling yourself innocent, you're probably not. If you're calling yourself prudent, You're probably not. If you're calling yourself wise, well, you're probably stupid. No, anyway, back to the, the wiki. King Louis the, Louis the Prudent of France has always been at odds with his father, and now deceased King Charles VII. He had an even engaged in open rebellion in 1440, but now that Louis the King of France, now that Louis is the King of France, he's having trouble with the nobles. The king has continued to whittle away at the holdings of the Duke of Burgundy, who is the father of Charles the Bold, Charles was the brother-in-law and the friend of Louis before he was king. Perhaps Charles believed that their friendship would count when Louis became king, but it was not to be. Charles has organized some of the nobles into the League of the Public Wheel in order to oppose the king's centralization of government. The League prefers the old-time feudal lord system that was in place prior to the Hundred Years' War. The king will give in to the League for a time, but the League will die out along with the feudal system. Charles, okay, my, my take by Alex Shrug, Charles the Bold wants to create his own kingdom, separate from France. In the past, dukes, earls, and counts were essentially local kings, so what Charles wants is not unusual. It's just not doable because the king of France wants a centralized government. The king can't force Charles into compliance, but the king will separate him from the League by first offering concessions as to quell the objections of the League. That will take the initial fight out of them, Then the king will take back in small bites everything he gave and more. Now that sounds like government in a whole, but there's something bigger here. If you think about the history of the United States, and once the uh, revolution was over and the nation came together under initially the Articles of Confederation and later the United States Constitution, you start to realize that this is an age-old debate. 
strong central government or a republic of states? And where does the power lie? See, it's hard to see because this is a feudal system and people have birthrights and nobles and kings and queens and princes and dukes. And But no, see, it's the same thing. It's just these people weren't elected. Not that really your vote counts for that much in this day and age in an oligarchy, but it's the same thing. It's the same debate. Here's the key. Whoever is in power wants to consolidate as much power as they can. So... Today, a governor of Texas wants to keep as much power for Texas in Texas over Texans as they can and bequeath as little as possible to the federal government in Washington, which of course is made up of many people, including elected officials from the state of Texas and the Congress. But of course, the federal government doesn't want that. They want all the power for themselves, and they want these pesky states to shut up and do what they're told. Whether they fund or don't fund a mandate, they don't really care. And going all the way back to the foundation of our republic, there was always a debate as to which it should be, a strong central government or a weak central government. And here's the thing. Sooner or later, you're always going to end up with a strong central government because all government seeks to increase power and all government will use the power that you give onto it for the increase of power. So if I give you one little power as a government, you will use that power to create another, and then you'll use those two powers to create a third, and then you'll use those three powers to create a fourth. You see how it works. So here's the irony. This is what people don't realize about why the United States is turning into the biggest police state that ever existed, the most totalitarian state that ever existed. Why it's the case? Because it started out as one of the weakest. See, when you give a government such limited power as this government, as a central government had, at our founding, you do something. You create an environment for growth of an economy and growth of a people. And you create a place that people want to come to and they come here and they work really, really hard. And over time, you begin to tax the fruits of their labor and their property. But because your nation is so prosperous, there's so much wealth to tax, the government has a giant candy store. And because the people are doing so well, at first they say, Oh, you want a penny on the dollar? Take it. Oh, you want a nickel on the dollar? Take it. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And then the government uses that money to create more power. And in the end, the, the nation that starts out with the smallest central government will end up with the largest. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. So the only answer you have in today's day and age is to create your own fiefdom. Your own dukedom, your own kingdom, in your own life. It is the only way to rebel. We'll talk about that more in today's episode as we go through your calls. With that, let us take the first call, but it's on something, well, totally different and down-to-earth practical. Uh, hi, Jack. This is Dave in Colorado. Love the show. Uh, I've got a quick question about meat birds and keeping them from killing each other. Uh Basically, I was kind of under the impression that uh, as far as meat birds go, it doesn't really matter if you get male or females in general, but I would assume that all the roosters would want to kill each other before they got to full size. So you generally, for meat birds, just do females then for the most part, or how does that work? Uh, anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, thanks a lot. Well, you know, as a permaculturist, I can always fall back on the standard answer of it depends. But then I feel an obligation to explain, well, what does it depend upon? 
And the first thing it depends upon is how many, uh, how big the tractor or paddock system you're doing them or confinement area is you're doing them in is, and uh, what kind of breed are we talking about. So let's talk about the Cornish Cross Chicken, which is the number one meat breed chicken out there, and then the Heritage White, which is pretty similar, maybe a little bit more survivable on uh, on pasture. Um, but these chickens are the Jabba the Hut of chickens. By the time they're about five weeks old, they're pretty much like, it's a hobby, hob, da, hob, da, da, purina, pellets, hob, da, da, chicken scratch. Right? They don't really want to do anything. They want to sit in front of a feed trough. They want to eat. They want to get fatter. They want to sleep. They scratch around a little bit, peck around a little bit, and plop back in front of the trough and eat some more. By the time you butcher them, you'll notice that they have a lot of feathers missing on their breast, and this is from dragging their Jabba the Hut butts around. Uh, you're probably slaughtering at them at eight weeks to ten weeks at the latest. They've only matured so much, and by the time they start getting that testosterone going around in there and they're ready to start beating up other chickens, eh, they're in a killing cone or hanging from an oak tree. Okay, So they're just not that big a deal. But... The problem you often get with chickens is eye pecking. And this is why in commercial chicken operations, they take the chicken when it's a little baby and they burn the end of its beak off to make it flat because they shove them all together so much they peck each other's eyes out. All right? So uh, since we don't want to be inhumane assholes in the way we treat a chicken and we don't want to do that to them because they say, well, it doesn't hurt. Let me burn your beak off. Oh, you don't have one? We'll try your nose. See if it hurts. So... We, uh, what we can do is we can simply spread them out so that they're not piled on. And this is good practices for all your chickens, but when you're running 30, 40, 50 birds in a big tractor or a, uh, you know, a reasonably sized paddock system or something like that, um, you, you, this is even more important. Spread the food out. So if, if you look at our chicken tractors that we use in West Virginia for our meat birds there, we basically take a piece of 4-inch PVC pipe and rip it long ways in half and cap the ends, like a big rain gutter. You could use rain gutter for this, too. There's the PVC pipe will last longer than the chicken tractor. It'll last forever. And you attach that to the floor of the chicken tractor, and you fill it long ways, and that way when the birds are eating, they can space out. Where if you use like a traditional round feeder, and you have that many birds trying to eat, they're all fighting each other for the food, and they start pecking at each other's eyes. So if you're doing... A meat purpose bird, i.e. the Cornish cross, heritage whites, things like that, and you spread the feed out, it's not really going to matter. And I'll get to the male-female thing in a second. Now, when we get to uh, something like a Red Ranger or uh, the Dixie Rainbows, these birds are birds that you can uh, keep past meat rearing time, and they'll actually lay eggs, become roosters, make new chickens. They're probably not the best breed for that. They do have some leg issues as they get bigger because they're so daggone huge. Uh, and they were bred for meat. They're certain hybrid crosses that are specifically to make a meat chicken. These birds are a lot more active. These birds may look like Job of the Hut, but they move more like your Jedi chickens. They get around. And when we raised about 60 of them, we did have some problems with the eye pecking, which was, we, you know, that's where we learned. Spread the food out. That helped a lot. But the birds would get to a point where they were squaring off and all because you're raising these birds 12 weeks, 14 weeks sometimes, and the birds are a lot more close to maturity. What we actually found with, though, is if you go with all cockerels, there's another reason for this I'll get to in a second, but if you go with all cockerels, there's only so much fighting. 
First of all, they're never fully mature about it. I mean, you're looking at fully mature birds, ready to start really breeding. You're looking 16, 18, 20 weeks. I raised a few of them to that size. They were way too big. I'm like talking dressed out 10 pounds. Okay, So you don't really want to raise them to that size anyway. If you want to raise a bird that big, you're better off holding one or two weeks over a Cornish cross and keeping it somewhere cool than you are one of these Red Rangers because they're just tough at that size. They're not a great bird at that size. Um, and they were going out a little more, but there was only six of them, so they had chilled out. We finished them in a pen that had like a goat pen, a, go a goat house in it, and a few of the males that were being singled out for uh, brutality would spend most of their day sitting up on top of there to be away from the others. So if they have a place they can get away from each other a little bit and get some separation, that helps as well. But the reason you want to go with cockerels generally is they usually cost less uh, for just about anything other than straight run on your cornishes. Um, and since they cost less, they cost less. And then because they're males, they get bigger. So you get a bigger carcass at the same age. So that's why a lot of people do go with all cockerels. There's a bird called the Kosher King, and all you can get is cockerels. Uh, ben Falks raised them on occasion. Also, John Dowie of, of Duck fame has raised them and said they get very big, very healthy, beautiful birds out of the Kosher Kings. And this is a bird that the, uh, the Amish farmers use for their egg production, and they will not sell the hens. They only sell the surplus cockerels, and you have to call them to order them because they don't have a website because they're Amish. So it, it's very much the case that a lot of people do raise cockerels to the exclusion of hens for meat birds because you get a bigger carcass. If you've ever heard of a Cornish hen, it's generally what you're actually is a Cornish cross female, slightly smaller bird. A lot of meat producers, though, that are producing hundreds and hundreds of birds Uh, for market, they just do straight run because it costs the lease. And if you're doing Cornish crosses, even the females are relatively large birds. And it's good to have a mix of sizes for your market. Some people like a four-pound chicken. Some people like a six-pound chicken. Uh, some people like an eight-pound chicken, depending on how long you keep them on pasture. Your hens, though, absolutely can get into the whole eye-pecking, confrontational competition thing. So the biggest thing I've learned with meat chickens is since you're generally, even if you're pasturing them, confining a fairly large number to a fairly small area, spread the food out, spread the water out. Give them lots of opportunities. And I do have a little piece of advice for anybody playing with baby chickens where you're letting them crawl on you or your kids up on your shoulder and stuff. Wear glasses. They don't always peck eyes because they want to hurt the other animal. Uh, that does happen as they get older and, and they just like fight with each other a little bit. But they actually, chickens are a lot like sharks in that their beak versus a shark's teeth is its fingers. It's how it figures stuff out. So if you ever notice a chicken that's out and sees something it's never seen before, then it kind of looks at it, turns its head sideways, looks on the side of its head. A lot of times it'll peck that thing. Now I peck it twice and kind of figure out, is this food or not? It's different to me. I want to know, what is that? And they, oh, oh I, I don't want that. Or, oh, that's food, I'm going to eat it. That's how they figure it out. So baby chickens are pretty bad about pecking people in the eye because they see your pupil and it looks different. It looks weird and they peck it. And you'd be surprised at how hard a little bitty bird can peck you in the eye, damage your cornea. So be careful with young birds around your eyes. This is also a reason sometimes if you order birds, especially light-colored birds, i.e. buff orpingtons, white leghorns, sometimes some of your babies will come in with damaged eyes, you know, kind of sealed shut with uh, a layer, And that's because in the box, 
since they're so light, the other birds around, they look at each other and they see that eye and they might peck at it. Usually, a little bit of coffee salve or something on that eye, keep that bird separated for a day or two, and usually the eye will open back up and end up with no real damage. We had several birds over the years now that we thought had lost an eye, and simply by separating them and, and giving them some ointment, uh, their eye recovered just fine. So there you go. Hope that helps you. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Lauren from the Dallas area. How do you grow a pecan tree from a pecan? And also, is there a way to keep a pecan I pick up now for a year and then try to grow a tree later? My fiancé and I are moving to North Louisiana in about a year and want to be able to plant trees from pecan trees that have special memories for us here. Is it possible, or do we need to start growing the trees now? Um, he's got one from his grandpa's old house that's deceased that he spent his childhood at, And I got one from the house that I grew up in that we just want to be able to pass on and bring along. Thanks for everything you do, Jack. I learn something new every podcast. Okay, I'm going to start out with telling you the good news. The good news is the pecans are one of the easiest things in the world to start from seed. Um, that if you live in a place where there's lots of pecan trees, they're a lot like oaks with acorns. You often find them just volunteering and growing all, all by themselves. That's the good news. The bad news is he said, I got one from here, and he got one from there, and I really don't recommend one anything ever. Two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is even more, five keeps you alive, six is the kicks. You got it right? So I'm always big on let's grow more than we need because one might die, a dog might eat one, a goose might steal one. That might only be me that has to worry. But there's all kinds of ways you can lose one. So I would recommend that for your long-term strategy, you get a hold of, like, say, a dozen uh, uh, of each of these varieties, keep them labeled, and get them growing, and plant two or three at least where you want one, and over time select a tree that seems to be doing best and, and cut out the others. That'll give you, because this is something important to you, obviously, or you wouldn't have called on it, and you have this family lineage, and you want that memory, and that's awesome. So since it's important to you, let's put some insurance in there. Now, let's talk about starting trees and how do we do it and storing nuts. Okay, if we want to store a pecan, we need to store it dry. Okay, we need to take the moisture content uh, down to about, Four to six percent from about 20 when it's harvested. The easiest way I know to do that is put it, put them in a jar. Don't cover the jar, but cover them with rice. Cover them with rice for a few weeks, and then you can take them out, and they can be stored something breathable, uh, and they can be stored either cool or even room temperature, and they should be fine for a year or more, like any seed that you would have out there. But drying them out is important. The easiest way to store them is in a refrigerator at about 45 degrees, 40 degrees, never freezing. If you freeze a seed, you kill it usually. You want to keep it above freezing. So refrigerator temperatures are great. You can either do that dry or moist. You do want to do a moist stratification of your seed for pecans for about 90 days. This would be take your seed, put it in a jar with some uh, potting soil, damp potting soil, cold, covering your seeds, or wet paper towels you know, around your, your pecans for 90 days. You may actually see them start to sprout in there uh, a little bit. This usually does happen with seeds like apple and pear, but not usually, but it can happen with pecans. After that period, it really makes sense to take those pecans out 
and soak them in water, room temperature water, for 24 hours. Then plant them about one, and a, one to one and a half inches deep uh, wherever you want to grow, whether in a pot and you want to start them as a seedling and move them on or in the ground where you want them to grow. So that's the procedure. Now, you're moving next year. Okay. It, you have choices here. Okay. One would be to start the stratification process of your pecans in about a month, month and a half from now. That at 90 days will put you into spring planting to plant them in a pot and then plan on taking them with you when you go. You'll have trees that are about a year old when you leave, and that will be fine. And assuming you can get some more seeds, I would start more than one each. If you only have one, you always could have a dud. It could just be a bad seed. So if you can still get some, get them. Okay? And then you got to take care of them. Now that's, that's the downside, right? You're going to have to care for and transport this plant. And a pecan started from seed will probably get a couple feet high at least in a single season. Now, there's some ways we can mitigate this, okay? One would be you could build a temporary raised bed fairly deep. I'm talking, oh, I don't know, three feet deep with a very, very edge to the side of sandy soil mix. Really loose, really friable, easy to extract. Plant your seedlings in there, and when you go to move next year about this time, it'll be a good time of year. You know, they're dropping their leaves at this point. They're heading toward dormancy anyway to dig them up and transport them as bare roots, wrapped in wet newspaper, wet toweling, etc. They'll probably transport just fine for you that way. They'll have a really deep tap root. You will have to take some of it off because, believe it or not, in one year that tree may go deeper than that, and you have a well-started tree. Or just plant them in the ground in the spring of the year after you move. Those are your two main choices. Now, with all this complexity, let me tell you how if I wanted to start a bunch of pecans, I would do it. I would either build a raised bed with a loose, friable, sandy soil mix in it, okay? Uh, or I would take multiple buckets with the same type of soil mix in it with lots of holes, very good drainage. I would collect an ass load of pecans. I would bury them in the soil. I mean, an inch apart from each other, two to four inches deep in that soil or more, and I would leave them in a cool place but where they would not freeze solid. So if I was doing it here, since I get cold enough days that if they were in a raised bed, it's probably not going to freeze solid under there. Big mulch layer on top and all, it's cold as shit, but it's not going to freeze solid. In a bucket where the cold surrounds the bucket, yeah, it might freeze solid. So I would take that bucket, I'd put it in a dark, cool place in my garage, and I'd leave it all over winter. And I just, in the spring, start looking for the ones that are sprouting. The ones that are sprouting, I would plant. And, and why would I do that? Pecans are native to here. They're designed to stratify, buried by squirrels and other critters, and in deep litter, at the temperatures that exist where we live. You live somewhere near where I live based on your area code, and you're moving somewhere similar to where I live based on where you told me you're going. So we know that the pecan is native to this climate, and we'll stratify just fine at our temperatures. Now, if I only had a couple seeds, I might want to take greater control, refrigerator, everything I told you before. But if I have access to a tree dropping a ton of seeds, I can just take two or three big handfuls and store them in a box or a raised bed or an in-ground bed or something like that and just store them in outside temperatures or in like garage temperatures, keep them moist, and they'll do their own thing and they'll come out at their own time. Uh, again, I wouldn't do that trying to get 100% germination or even 90% germination rate, but generally such seeds are in such abundance, that's an easy way to do it. 
Another way to do that is to build something like, and this is when you're going to higher levels of production, an in-ground cold frame. So if we dig a hole down into the ground and we put then our boxes of soil mix kept moist in that hole in the ground and we keep that covered but vented so we're not trying to heat it up during the day, but we're going to stay above freezing because it's below grade. Uh, that's a great environment to stratify at natural temperatures for the area. Remember when you just say, well, if the trees do it, why don't you just throw it in a bucket and leave it outside? Well, you can. But remember how the tree reproduces. One pecan makes thousands and tens of thousands of seeds. And if two or three a year end up somewhere and grow, it's, it's good. It's done its job, right? Especially two or three a year end up with five-year survival rates, it's done its job. So it makes for up for it in numbers. So we need to make up with care to give those optimal conditions to as many seeds as possible. So there you go. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chris from New Jersey. I got a question for expert council member John Fugliano, or maybe you could help me out. I was wondering what I should look for in a financial advisor. How do I tell the difference between someone who really knows what they're talking about versus someone who just pushes stocks and bonds? Uh, like to hear your guys' feedback. Thanks. Bye. Hello, TSP listeners. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth, and I'm answering Chris from New Jersey's question on how to select a financial advisor. Well, Chris, I'm going to quickly cover five things that you should consider when you're thinking about hiring an investment advisor. And for the most part, these are the same five things that you should consider when you're making a substantial purchase or investment in any product or service. So they apply to everybody, not just those of you that may be interested in getting some financial advice. The first place I would suggest you start is to make sure that your advisor is legitimate and legal. You would not believe the number of scams that are perpetrated on people, particularly more vulnerable people uh, like, like senior citizens. The SEC, an industry organization called FINRA, that's F-I-N-R-A, maintain databases on all investment firms, brokers, and then the advisors and representatives that work for them. And they make available public disclosure on general information about the firms and the individuals, whether they're licensed, what jurisdictions they operate in, if they've had any criminal history, convictions, fines, penalties, assessments, things like that. Now, to find that database, Google a phrase like, check out an investment advisor. You should find a link to it, and from there you'll be able to do a search on your specific advisor. I will caution you, though, just because the individual has a clean record, it doesn't mean they're not a criminal. Bernie Madoff, who ran the largest Ponzi scheme in history, was able to get away with it for 25 years and never failed an audit. So keep that in mind. The second item that you should consider is to determine what services you need and what skill level your prospective advisor has the ability to deliver on those needs that you have. Now, I don't know what your specific needs are. You sound like a younger man, so perhaps you're interested in growth and appreciation of your portfolio. Someone that's older may be more interested in preservation of their wealth and, and developing some investment income. Other people may be concerned with protecting their assets against inflation. Still, others may be concerned with minimizing their tax burden. Whatever it is that you need, just take out a scratch paper and write down the two or three or four most important things that you want your financial advisor to deliver on. You know, what are those things that are worrying you? What are those things that are keeping you up at night? What are the things that you're concerned about? What problem are you trying to solve? Take those concerns and then re rewrite them in forms of questions and then pose those questions to your prospective advisor as you interview them because you are indeed hiring them to either manage your money or to provide you with financial advice. So go down your list of concerns. 
Ask them what would be their strategy for you to avoid inflation if that's what you're interested in. Ask them how they're going to help you preserve and grow your wealth. And then listen to their answers. If they're haughty, if they're trying to avoid your question, if they speak in a bunch of industry jargon that you don't understand, or they talk down to you, or if you get a sense that they're trying to BS you, well, that's a red flag. You don't want any of those things to happen. You want to work with an advisor that can take complex concepts and information and boil it down into a language that you understand. And Chris, I would also tell you not to be intimidated. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You're hiring. You're going to be engaging this individual. They're working for you. You're the boss. If you don't like the results that you're getting during the interview process, I can almost guarantee that you're definitely not going to like the results once you start paying this person and they don't deliver. Don't forget that old adage, which says, don't take financial advice from someone that's broke. If your advisor's living paycheck to paycheck and he can't manage his own money, why would you want him to manage yours? Now, the third thing I think you'd want to consider is the level of service that you're going to be receiving from this individual. You have that same list of questions, your concerns. You've reviewed that with a prospective advisor. If you like their answers, if they seem logical, you don't take anything at face value. You go to Google and, and look up some answers. Make sure it appears that these are reasonable, rational answers that you're receiving. And then you start asking them about service. How are they going to fulfill that? If he tells you his strategy for protecting your assets or for helping you lighten your tax burden, or if he suggests a way of increasing your portfolio by 12%, and ask him how he's really going to deliver on that. What level of service is he going to do to engage that? Is he just going to put you in mutual funds and let it sit there and ride out all market conditions? Is he going to be actively trading for you? And how available is he going to be? Do you have a cell phone? Is he going to answer it when you call him? Does he return emails? Is he handling you and maybe a 100 other clients? Or is he handling you and 2,000 other clients? Drill down. Ask him these questions. You're going to be paying this individual good money. It's your right to know what type of service you're going to receive for it. Now, the fourth thing I think you might want to consider is what value are you actually going to derive from this service? Now, another way that I pose this question is by making a statement that most people don't need a financial advisor. And really, the way I should be rephrasing that statement is not saying that people don't need an advisor, but rather saying that people can't afford a good advisor. They probably definitely need the advice. They just don't have enough money to purchase the talent to provide that advice to them. So this fourth area, you want to look for value. What's your money going to buy? And how valuable is that service or that advice that you're going to receive from this individual? Are they just going to throw you in four mutual funds, set it and forget it, and tell you you're diversified, and then they'll look at it once a quarter? Well, you could spend 30 minutes online and figure that out yourself. If you don't have enough money to buy the real talent that you need, perhaps you should focus more on being a saver and building up your nest egg, worrying more about what you're earning and saving, and not so much worrying about what you're investing or getting a return on your investment. Build that nest egg up first. When you get some substantial assets, then if you don't want to invest it yourself, you can hire the proper talent to do it for you. And in regards to whether or not you can afford the service, the other question is, how are they charging you for it? Is it a flat fee? Is it a variable fee? Is it a commission or some other type of compensation that's either built into the price of the product or service or it's somewhat maybe even hidden in there? Do they have any other relationships where they make money off the recommendations that they sell to you, such as insurance, annuities, or accounting or tax preparatory type services, find out how they're getting paid. Again, you're the one that's paying them, so don't be afraid to ask. And finally, the fifth suggestion that I'd have for you, and I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but there's a lot of truth in it, and that's that you should hire a financial advisor that you don't like. And that's because it'll make it easier when the time comes to fire them. You've heard Jack many times refer to financial advisors as financial liars. I refer to them as financial salesmen. Bottom line is that many people in this industry, they're just selling a product or a service. They're more concerned about their paycheck or their commission than they are about building your wealth. 
But that is exactly what you're paying them to do, to build, preserve, and grow your assets. Your financial advisor is not your friend. He's offering you a professional service. So, Chris, those are the five or so things that I think you should consider. Again, and not only when you're hiring a financial advisor, but when you're looking at making any substantial purchase or investment in a product or a service. If you found this answer helpful, consider listening to my new podcast. That's where I cover all the topics not only related to finance and wealth, but more importantly, helping you build your personal freedom. You can find more information about it at the website, wealthsteading.com. That's wealthsteading, and it rhymes with homesteading. Chris, thank you for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano. Hey, Jack. Scott from North Georgia. Permeethos founder and active serving member in the military. With a lot of life choices that I'm currently facing, um, I actually found truth in one of the most odd places. Jim Carrey. He said this, We mostly choose our path out of fear, calling it practicality. But that, too, can fail. Just like his father failed at being an accountant instead of doing comedy, which he loved. So if you can fail doing what you don't want, you might as well take a chance at doing what you love. Just thought that you'd like that and your listeners could use some encouragement in this time where fear seems to be around every quarter. Thanks. Have a good day. Interesting. Well, before I comment on that, a few other things. I mean, first of all, uh, many of us in the First or Second Amendment community um, are aware of Jim Carrey's stupid comments about guns. And now, Carrey being a guy that probably wouldn't know a gun from his ass in a hole in the ground if, if one was put in front of him. And uh, so we, we have a negative opinion of him. And my, my reality is he did some really stupid movies. And he did some really funny-ass movies, and he's an incredibly talented guy. And I, I do appreciate the sentiment of, of, of what the caller said that he said, and I, I agree with it. But it makes me think of someone who said it a lot better. Uh, quite a few years ago, right as I was beginning the concept that I was going to start up and run and, and make something out of the Survival Podcast, and at that time, I was actually uh, a chief operations officer for a company, and I was a president slash owner of another company, and that was all in, in, in collaboration with my uh, prior business partner, Neil Franklin, Franklin, who I'm now doing Gen Ford with. So there was a lot of emotional things vested there, and I had a lot of um, I had a really good life. I had a really good income, a really good life, and a really good opportunity, but I wasn't happy. And I had started TSP by the time I heard what I'm about to play for you. And somebody said, do you know who this guy is? He sounds a lot like you, which was weird because he was talking about business and things like that. And I really wasn't talking about business that much uh, with, with TSP yet. But I was starting to tell people about the need to live life their own way. And so they sent me this, and I got this at an email at work. Now, keep in mind, I own a company, and I'm the COO of another company. I'm actually a partner in the holding company that owns both of them. And somebody sends me this, and I listen to about three minutes of it. And it's about 15 minutes long. I'll tell you the three minutes that I listened to. I almost, swear to God, I almost catapulted doing TSP full-time by almost two years because I, I was a hair's breadth after hearing this from standing up and walking out of my own company. I warn you on that because it's Friday. You might be listening to this toward the end of your day. And don't make rash decisions, but on some levels, make rash decisions. So before I comment more on the sentiment, let me pay for, play for you Gary Vaynerchuk from the Web 2.0 Expo in New York. I believe this was from 2008. Um, and again, please don't do anything rash, but please consider strategically doing something rash as you listen to Gary's words. You don't want this, do you? 
Hey. So, first and foremost, oh, should I just do this for you? First and foremost, I really want to um, thank everybody. I mean, this is outrageously humbling. Every single person in this room, since you're here, there's no doubt in my mind that you are going to kill it. And that's what I want to talk about today. PP. I really want to talk about this. Patience and passion. Let's start with passion. There is way too many people in this room right now that are doing stuff they hate. Please stop doing that. There is no reason in 2008 to do shit you hate. None. Promise me you won't. Because you can lose just as much money being happy as hell. Clap that up because it's real shit. You know, I I took over my family business. It was doing a couple million dollars a year. And over a seven-year period, I built it up to a $50 million company. Turned 30, freaked out, and decided I wanted to do something else. Get on my face. And so... I saw, you know, Zay Frank and Amanda Kahn at Rocket Boom doing all that stuff. I'm like, I can do that shit. And so that's what I decided I want to do. I became 1% not happy selling wine. One. And that's when I changed my life. I started Wine Library TV in February. I had to do the holiday thing and all that. But, and, and that's where this all started. And by the way, talking about patience, everyone's like, oh, Gary, this is so great. But you, you're so handsome and charismatic. I can't do that shit. You know? And I was like, listen. 17 months, I don't know if you know this, 17 months, you saw Fred say 2006, you just heard about me yesterday, 17 months, I did Wine Library TV five days a week, I walked away from being CEO of my company, running that stuff, watching it dip, for seven years it grew 24% every month against the month from the year before, and I walked away, started Wine Library TV, and I became part of the community, let's talk about community, listen to your users like Fred said, absolutely. But giving a shit about your users is way better. People listen, but they don't do anything. Doing something, answering those emails, giving a crap, caring about your user base, that's what you need to do. You need to care about everything. And it starts with yourself. Look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, what do I want to do every day for the rest of my life? Do that. I promise you can monetize that shit. If you love ALF, do an ALF blog. You collect Smurfs, Smurf it up. Whatever you need to do, do it. Yeah, when I first heard that, it really spoke to me. When when I heard, you know, I was far more than 1% unhappy with my life at the time. And when somebody said, well, I became 1% unhappy. And that must be a little bit of an exaggeration. And Gary is a performer. As, as I am, and as any public speaker, is there's some level of performance, especially on stage where you're trying to engage an audience and fire them up. There's some level of performance. And sometimes you might bend a number a little bit, but you're always telling the truth if you're a credible person. And, and Gary is. I've actually had Gary on the show once, and uh, he's an amazing guy. Uh, and he is uh, almost like a, a clone of me in some ways, and then totally different in others. But when I heard those words, I, I wanted to walk out. And I think there is truth in the fact that you can be highly successful at something you love or you can be highly successful at something you hate. You can be a miserable failure at both of them as well. And when I, when I look around in my world today, whether it's as a career or a business person, as a contractor, however you want to approach your life and your income, I, I ask myself, why would anybody choose misery? Why would anybody choose what they hate? Well, it pays good. Well, I bet you what you love pays better. I bet you what you love pays better. When, when I finally did walk away from corporate America to do TSP, I, I was not 
in any way making the money that I was as an employee in my own company that I owned that also had equity in. I just didn't. Um, and I wasn't making the money that I made as a VP of sales for Fluke Networks. You know, I mean, it was, it was enough that we were like, we can, we can make this, we can build on it. But the truth is today we do better than we ever did as an employee ever financially. We do great. We're probably never going to get wealthy. I mean, you know, in the you know, Donald Trump kind of wealthy way. Maybe never even the Gary Vaynerchuk way. Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk wants to buy the Jets. That's his goal, and it's great to have a goal that big. You know, my goal is to is to make TSP something that changes lives. That's that's really what it is, and to you know make a living while we do that. But you can't tell me that. You have to do something you don't like just because it pays well because I've seen the other option and I know that the fact that somebody tells you you do is a lie. See, it's very hard to believe a lie once you know the truth. And the truth is you do not have to live the way that you're living right now. If you're unhappy, if you're happy with it, don't change shit. Just make more of what you have if you're happy with it. But here's the problem with life. This is the truth about life. Whatever you have in your life right now, if you stay on your current course, you will have more of it. If you have debt and you stay on the path of debt, you will get more debt. If you have misery, you will get more misery. If you're an asshole and you're an asshole in your daily life all the time and you don't do anything to correct it, you will become a bigger asshole. You will be an old man that's an asshole. Okay? That's the truth. If you have good things in your life and you keep working the way that you are now and do all the things that brought them in there, you'll have more. And if you have shitty things in your life and you keep doing what you've been doing up till now, you'll get more shitty things. That's how it works. It's so obvious that it's unrealistic to think that the average person doesn't know that, but they don't. They don't know that. Or they wouldn't keep doing the same shit that got them where they are. If I just keep, I, I remember talking to business people in my consulting days. Well, when things pick up, when things pick, things are not going to pick up in your business, idiot. That's what I wanted to say. Because if that's your attitude, there's no way they're ever going to. When things turn around, they're not gonna turn around. You're going to have to grab it by the ass and turn it around. And when people are paying you to talk to them and help them with their business, you have to be a little more politically correct. But in the end, that's what I would say. Your business is freaking doomed. Your business is doomed. Your sales peaked two and a half years ago. They've been on a continuous downhill run ever since. And you're doing the same shit that got you not only to where you were, but got you to where you are. So you're going to run your business into the ground. Right? Well, and you're thinking, well, I don't own a business, Jack. That doesn't apply to me. If your life is negative and you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to run your life into the ground. If your relationships are in a negative state and you keep doing the things that got you in there, you're going to run your relationships into the ground. If you're addicted to anything from gambling to freaking methamphetamine and you keep doing the things that you did to get there, you will run your addictions into the ground and they will destroy you. If you have poor relations with the people you care about, the people you love, and you keep doing what you're doing, they will become worse. How obvious is this? How obvious is this? Well, it applies to your choices of what you do for an income. If what you do for a living is making you miserable and you keep doing it, you will become more miserable. And eventually it will affect your performance. And you will become worse, not better at what you do and more miserable at the same time. And sooner or later, you will not even be able to earn the living you're accustomed to from doing that which makes you miserable. You'll be just good enough to hang on, maybe. 
And then you could end up in a place that I don't want anybody in this audience to end up. But I saw four men, four men in my life that ended up in this very place. And I didn't understand it at the time. I was 22 years old, and I was running things for my company that I worked for. Not my company I owned. A company I worked for called ACS Dataline. It was my first job, my first real job in telecom. I started out with MCI as a contractor, and then I got this job. And um, I was 22, 23, 24, not 24. 24, yeah, 24 is probably right by the time that I had uh, achieved a, a, the title of senior associate tech, and I had this this job site, was my job site. There were four men that worked there, four. The youngest among them was a day older than my father, and all of them were pulling cable for a living. They were putting in data jacks and things like that. This is not you know, a terrible job, but it doesn't pay that well because, honestly, if you can learn, learn and memorize colors and some basic troubleshooting and, and, and things like that, to do the move ad and change stuff and install a room over here, I can train you to do this job in three weeks. Now, finding good people to do it is hard because it only pays so much because when you train somebody to do a job in three weeks, you only get so much out of the, the, the talent pool before they move on to do something else. But all four of these men had careers before they had this job. One worked for Texas Instruments his whole life. He had a retirement, but it wasn't enough to get by. And when he tried to go back into his career, he actually hated it, so it didn't work. Nobody wanted him. You're too old. But what, what they, you know, a lot of times they say you're too old, what it really means is You're not good enough anymore. I don't care if you're old. <laughs> I care if you're good. And the other three all had real... They would talk about it like like I talk about the army, like the good old days. And here they're working for this punk 24-year-old, 23-year-old kid pulling cable. Yeah, put in five data jacks over there, six data jacks over there, and bring me your work orders. I'll sign off on them. 24-year-old kid. Why? Because they did what they really didn't enjoy for so long. They pigeonholed them into a point where they had to go find something else to do, but by that time, they really didn't know what else to do, so they took whatever job paid a meaningful wage. And all four of them ended up working for a 24-year-old kid when they were in their 50s. And when you stay at what you hate... That's where you end up. And if anybody out there is saying, is this a survivalist topic? I don't know. Is not destroying your freaking life a survivalist topic? Is, is living a meaningful life a prepper topic? I say it is. You can make a living doing what you love. You can thrive doing what you love. Do not do that which you hate any longer than is necessary. Now, I cautioned you. Don't be rash, but be strategically rash. That means don't storm out of your job today stupidly when you have bills and mortgages and a family depending on you. But if you really hate what you do, build yourself a strategic exit path. It may be a hybrid like I did where you do two things at once and you work 90 hours a week. And at three o'clock in the morning, you're getting up so you have some time. Or it may be a more direct path. Be responsible with it. Be strategic with it. But when people say, don't ever do anything rash, that's a recipe for mediocrity. You're better than that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this has been in Portland, Oregon. Um, inspired by some of your recent stuff on copy canning and whatnot, I've been uh, looking at foods that will store well. 
And I noticed that uh, canned foods, canned fish seems to store for a really long time. Like I just picked up a can of salmon that uh, doesn't expire, you know, according to the printed date until September of 2018. And I was wondering two things. One, what is it about canned fish like sardines, salmon, whatnot, that makes it seem to give them such a long shelf life? And two, um, obviously I don't want to eat nothing but fish, store nothing but fish, but is there any downside to uh, storing canned fish? Thank you very much. Do a great job. Love what you do. Bye-bye. Well, there's a change up and a nice, easy one to answer for you for your preps. So, first of all, yeah, I, you definitely want to have proteins and fats in your storage. And the more you move toward paleo, which is the way I live, the more of that is the case. The, the good thing is most canned fish either has added fat that's positive fat or it's oily, fatty fish, which is a good fat. So when we look at that, we're getting a good fat ratio. Usually if you got a salmon, you know, they've got enough of their own natural fats that are in there. Uh, or you look at something like sardines, a lot of times there's added fats that are, are good positive fats, like olive oil that they're packed in. And that's part of it. That's part of the longer shelf life. That Well, oils turn rancid and all, yeah, but when you take an oil, a fat, and you put it into a completely uh, oxygen-deprived environment and you sterilize it, it actually adds to the ability of that thing to last long-term. Uh, if you think about something like pemmican that wasn't even that, and that the Native Americans made. And what that is is you crush up you know, dried meat and berries and nuts, and you make it like into a cake, and then you render tallow, which is basically fat. So if you ever butchered a deer, you know that you'll find some of the floating fat, and then you'll find thick, hard, candlewax-like stuff they call tallow. And you cut that off, and you render that with heat till it becomes liquid. And then you pour it over top of that, and then that meat and berry and nut cake lasts for a season with no refrigeration. So imagine if you canned it. And if you made something sort of like pemmican, but just out of meat and fat, and it was kind of disgusting and gross, you would have something more like, dun-dun-dun, spam, right? So when we look at something like fish, you're almost like fish spam light. You've got this high oil content, and it's also because of the danger, there's such danger with any meat product, and specifically fish, that if it's not canned right, you could get very, very sick for some very, very, very nasty things. So the standards for heat, duration, etc. for canning fish are high. So we've really like sterilized the sanitized sterilization to the utmost death of all living creatures inside that can beyond what we would even have to do for a green bean. So it's the processing, it's the oil, and it's the nature of the, the, the fish itself that it preserves well. And then there's the other reality. Uh, canned food doesn't go bad unless it actually goes bad and then you can tell. And what I mean by that is those dates don't mean jack shit. Those are used by their freshness dates. And I, I've eaten beans and corn and soups out of cans that were five years past date and they were fine. But the, the vegetable matter especially starts to get really poor texture really poor flavor, even more so than any canned item like that would have. So the texture degrades over time. But you don't die, you don't get sick. The fish and other meats tend to hold up better. And if you look at 
some canned meat products like uh, corned beef and Spam, you might find uh, expiration dates that seem ridiculous, but they're actually accurate because they hold up. And they started out as mushy crap, so when they turn into mushy crap, you don't really notice the difference is the other thing. So fish lasts a long time in a canned environment. So the other thing to understand, though, before we finish up on this topic is the dates themselves. They exist because of government, not because of true need. Down the road from me, there is a uh, composting and landscape materials company that, uh, that also does recycling. And they're one of the leading recyclers in Dallas-Fort Worth. And they have a permit, license, whatever the state deemed necessary to be able to recycle things like uh, expired beer, expired uh, sports drinks, and expired bottled water. So they get these huge cases of all this expired drink material in, and they smash holes in it and crush the plastic, and all the liquid goes onto the compost piles, and they use it because you need to keep compost moist. So they also have to use a lot of water, but they use this stuff too, and the sugars in it feed the little microbes, and they make really good compost out of things like beer and Powerade. Yes, there's GMO corn syrup in the Powerade, but after it goes through a composting process and all, I'm not really worried about it. It's an aside, though. The whole point is that they have all this stuff they have to get rid of to recycle because it's expired. Did you notice one of the products that I gave you there? Water. What is the shelf life of water? Thankfully for all life, it's infinite. It's infinite. If water went bad, we'd all be dead by now. Because when you pick up and you drink a, an ounce of water out of your sink, you just drank some dinosaur pee. That's called the water cycle. It's constantly and infinitely recycled, and it's been through rivers and streams and oceans and fallen as rain and been irrigated on fields, and eventually you're ending up drinking something that's been processed through a, a, a billion times over. So why is there an expiration date on water? Because the geniuses in the government of the state of New Jersey decided that every food product must have an expiration date, and the water company said, fine, screw it, we'll just label everything so we can sell in New Jersey, and decided on two years. And then somebody in their marketing department said, you know, that's not really a bad thing after all, because that'll make our suppliers have to keep moving it. So that became the way things are. So the other side of that is the, the dates on the cans aren't really that imperative in the first place. You're talking about the quality of the product versus the safety of the product. Properly canned foods should be somewhat infinitely storable. Anyway, let us take another call. Hello, this is Jerry in Southeast Michigan. I have a question for Michael Jordan, the bee guy. Uh, I have a hive of basically two deeps that I have not really done much with this year. And I want to know what I should do to uh, get them through the winter. Background is a very busy year for me. I had other things going on, so they basically just sat there. The package is introduced this year, and I don't know if there's anything I need to do or should do to help make sure that they make it through the winter. Thanks. Bye. Well, hi. This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company. I'm here to talk to you about uh, what to do towards the end of your season about wintering your hives. Uh, you know, when you get down towards October, November, that's when we take all the honey boxes off. You're trying to get the beehives as small as possible, top bar, sun hives, uh, war A. You're trying to eliminate and bring those hives down as small as possible. When you're getting away from the equator or the Mediterranean belt where it's warm, 
and it's around 80 degrees year-round, and you get up to where we are in Wyoming, or even all the way up to Alaska, you have to make these boxes smaller. So basically, we'll just go to a Langstroth beehive or a top bar. You're going to start pulling out the frames in a top bar, uh, bringing in, putting in a panel inside and making the area inside the top bar small. On your Langstroth, you're going to pull off all your top honey boxes so you can spin them, pulling off your queen excluder and isolating those boxes down to maybe where you have a deep brood or two deep brood boxes, depending on your location from the Mediterranean and up. That here in Wyoming, we go two deep brood boxes. That way they have a good honey supply that you're looking for to last them over the winter. But when you get those beehives down to that small portion, right, you're going to have to prep now for winterization that you're, you're ready to winterize them. And you need to do two things. You need to make a liquid feed and you make, need to make a candy feed. A uh, liquid feed is the liquid sugar feeds. Uh, we do a uh, third blend sugar feed where we have a five-gallon bucket. We basically fill it a third way with honey, a third way with a uh, sugar beet mix that we use that's a heavy sugar beet, molasses, and water. And that type of mixture has high nutrient and mineral because it's an earth uh, sugar. It uh, has mineral content and a lot of good uh, vitamins and stuff in it that you're not going to get from a lot of other sugars. And then the last third is a chamomile tea and water with a little powdered sugar that we make from honey by dehydrating our honey. We try to store all of our honey dehydrated. Whatever we don't sell liquefied, we dehydrate and sell to gluten-free and paleo. And we it's easier to store this powdered sugar that we make from the honey. But uh, blending it with a 50-50 water and then using a chamomile tea and some eucalyptus, um, some nettles and different things, we're giving them a dysentery medication and we're giving them a good mineral sugar substitute. And that's basically our, our liquid feed. But you need to get a liquid feed made because between now, which is about the, the middle of October, until about December, where it's still warm enough where the liquid won't completely freeze, you want them to be able to get that and feed as much as they can on a good source. And then you need to make a candy board or a candy patty, a good thick uh, sugar mixture. And uh, you can get these fondant recipes off of YouTube, B-Source, we have our own, but you need a hard candy, one that you can place inside the hive as well. So that way, uh, when it gets closer to the freezing time, you know, your, your, your liquid feeds will freeze. Um, makes it harder for the bees to get to them. If you're using a candy board on top or you're making candy board frames for top bar or you're making a fondant patty to put inside, this gives the bees something that when it's warm enough that they can chew on and eat and re-nourish themselves with a good uh, sugar base. So, you know, you, you've made the hive smaller, you've got them feed, ready to go, and then the next thing you need to do is uh, winterize them. And uh, how we winterize them is most of our Langstroth hives or the commercial-style beehives, we wrap with two uh, layers of roofing felt, roofing felt uh, rolled in rolled out and then laid in half is usually the width of two brood boxes. We wrap it around twice, stapling it to the beehive, and then cutting out the entranceways. That way the bees can come in and out. We prop open a 
quarter-inch piece of wood sliver in the roof to let ventilation go through. That way it doesn't build up condensation in the hive. Condensation makes water droplets on the top of the board. And then if you ever get a really hard freeze where it gets 40 below, it'll freeze. And the stalactites, when the water's freezing from the condensation, will get in the ball of your bees and freeze them to death. So you want some ventilation to go through, and you want a good covering or a wrap around them. Like I said, we're using a roofing felt to go around them. I also recommend that uh, you can use blankets, cover them with a good sleeping bag blanket. You want to keep that beehive 45 degrees, so that way they'll feed all the time. The more they can feed, the more that they'll keep alive, and you won't lose your population over the winter or freeze out your beehive. Another good tip that we use is the one-inch pipe method and light bulb. And we've made uh, bottom boxes out of brood boxes that sit underneath our beehives that we put a 100-watt light bulb in and then wrap that uh, beehive all inside with aluminum foil. When it kicks on, it reflects in there, makes it almost like a solar oven, making it heat underneath. Heat rises into the, the, the beehive, making it so it's warm. So those bees can constantly feed. I mean, that's a little more electricity, but uh, when it comes to keeping your bees at 30 and, you know, 60 below, you want to keep that beehive warm. Another good technique to use, and I've used it in Alaska, is that uh, we set the beehives on pallets, cover them with tarp, and then bury them in dirt so there's just the entranceways in the front, giving them, them what we call an earth burial. And uh, it makes it so that way you can just pull the dirt off, flip the tarps over, and then just get back to work. Uh, when we do that, we usually put uh, hay bales around three sides of the beehive, leaving the fronts open, covering with tarps, and then burying them with uh, dirt to about three to four feet. And then that way those beehives are earth-burdened and survive the winter very well. Uh, with these type of techniques, you know, uh, you can do all kinds of stuff. Remember, in emergencies, always have your powdered sugar available. Like I said, we dehydrate our uh, honey down into powdered sugar. And any time we do an inspection on a beehive, we always dust the tops of the bee frames and the bees with this powdered sugar for mite checks. So winterizing your hive can be really fun and interesting. And I want to let you know that you need to do this over the winter or you'll lose your bees. I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer with the Bee Friendly Company. And hopefully this little winter tip will help you with your bees. Hey, Jack, Richard in Idaho. Sorry that I uh, didn't get the last question off right. My son had just woken up in my arms. I was trying to keep him quiet. My question is, with the uh, President Obama's new, quote-unquote, plan uh, for his version of net neutrality versus what the FCC has been mulling, uh, to me it doesn't seem like there's any good option between the two, and it does not seem like they're going to choose the third option of just leaving things how they are. So what's your take on it? Which one do you think is better or worse? And why and uh, what can we do from here as individuals to promote liberty in this sphere? Thank you. Okay. When we look at Obama's plan for net neutrality, before we even worry about it, we have to ask ourselves, uh, is this in our circle of influence? No. And then so we know we can't influence it at all. It's not going to be influenced. Uh, because Obama does what Obama does, and if you think you have any control over the President of the United States, I, I can't help you because you're delusional. Uh, then the next thing we say is in my circle of concern. Now, before we even examine it to determine whether or not the things that are in it should concern us, we have to ask ourselves, 
uh, should it concern us as in uh, will this happen? And, and the answer is there's no way he's getting this done by the end of the year. And there's nobody in the Republican team that wants to do anything to help this guy out. And Republicans are notoriously uh, opposed to all this net neutrality legislation idea. So you're not getting it. It's not happening. So then you, I shouldn't be concerned with it um, for now. So whether the president wants it, uh, it doesn't matter because he ain't getting it. And uh, what's in it's not that important because, well, he ain't getting it. So since he ain't getting it, you really shouldn't care if that makes sense. Now there is some smuttering around. He'll just do an executive order like he's going to do an amnesty, and I sooner or later we're going to have to talk about that pile of crap. But uh, you know, uh, no, you, you this is not the kind of thing a president can get away with an executive order on. You you can't just initiate this. It's too big. It touches too many things. It it, it involves like moving things into the world of utility. The, the the oversight there is massive. You this would be something that no president in his right mind would ever challenge a legislature on because even members of uh, his his party in legislature that would actually support the idea would say, dude, no way, man. This would cause internal mafia fighting within the same mafia family. Like even though like we agree with what the Don did, he shouldn't do that without asking his lieutenants. That type of thing. So no, this is not happening by executive order. Not, not, ever, not, never, never, ever, ever. Now, here's the interesting thing. The things that, on the surface, Barack Obama wants for net neutrality, and I'm going to read from a letter from the President of the United States of America here in a minute, are, are, are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. I'll talk about where it goes wrong here in a minute. There's four primary pillars to Barack Obama's plan for net neutrality, which, by the way, are the same plans that have always been there for net neutrality legislation. Number one, no blocking. This is straight from his letter. If a consumer requests access to a website or service and the content is legal, your ISP should not be permitted to block it. That way, every player, not just those commercially affiliated with an ISP, get a fair shot at your business. Okay, so in other words, if you're on Comcast and you want to go check out Time Warner's site, they shouldn't be able to block it. Well, the thing is that no ISPs do that right now. But okay, fine. You know, uh, could it become the case that if you have a, 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 a monopoly or a biopoly of ISPs in your area, that together they could prevent you from uh, seeing certain things that they don't want you to see? Yeah, they could. So let's just say that you know it makes sense that we could just no. Next one, no throttling. Nor should ISPs be able to intentionally slow down some content or speed up others through a process called throttling, based on the type of service or your ISP's preferences. Um, that sounds good. And what it's saying is, let's say that I am uh, using my big giant uh, uh, connection uh, in my house to access a website like Google and do searches, and you are in the house next door and you're watching Netflix, and you're sucking down massive amounts of bandwidth to stream a video uh, product, and I'm not really using it. Well, what the ISP in theory might do is actually... Uh, restrict your bandwidth a little bit and say you're going to have a little bit less of a performance uh, quality because if we let you keep doing that, we're at a point now of network capacity where there's so many people pulling information in your node, your area, that if we don't degrade your performance a little bit, performance for everybody is going to suffer. Uh, and there's truth to that. There's truth to that. 
Uh, I can't just give you full unrestricted access all the time forever if everybody is doing it at the same time. I have to prioritize. Network prioritization is how every network that's run worth a shit anywhere in the world is run. If you go into an office building with 500 users that are banging on a server farm that run that company's business, do you throttle users based on prioritization and things that are called bursty traffic and things like that? So ISPs do throttle. And it's annoying, and it'll piss you off. And every once in a while, you'll notice that it's happening to you in certain situations. And by the way, they do lie and say they don't do it. Right? But what will happen is like you'll be doing something, and all of a sudden it gets really, really slow. So you pause that function, maybe reboot your router, and then reinitialize it, and it goes really fast. That's because you've kind of you jumped out of the queue of being throttled. So what the president's plan says is you're not allowed to do that anymore. Well, what that means is it's socialism, right? Everybody suffers equally. So throttling is something that is necessary, okay? It's necessary for you to be able to provide service to everybody and maintain a QoS or quality of service that's acceptable to all your users. No ISP really wants to throttle you. They really don't. Because if you get pissed off, you might get a different ISP or you might just decide the Internet's not for you and stop paying them. So the market itself keeps a lid on this type of thing. Um, but to say they can't do it at all will actually hurt the service of everybody in the long run because what happens is things begin to simply fail. So instead of throttling, you've simply tried to draw too much through an access point, and the access point just reboots. So uh, that one's kind of like it sounds good, but yeah, we probably shouldn't be doing that. And then increased transparency. The connection is back to the president's letter. The connection between the consumers and ISPs, the so-called last mile, is not the only place that some sites might get special treatment. So I am asking the FCC to make full use of the transparent authorities the court recently upheld, and if necessary, to apply net neutrality rules to points of interconnection between the ISP and the rest of the Internet. In other words, what they want to tell the ISP is we need to know everything you're doing everywhere. Okay, and like, how does this node in Chicago interact with this node in Philadelphia? And are you are you restricting or, or improving or throttling traffic there? Well, this is how networks work. This is how your AT and T cellular network works. This is why you can actually make a phone call and get through, and the service is more reliable today. This is how you. So you can have all the transparency you want, but the reality is the bureaucrats that want it won't know what the hell they're looking at. They won't understand it. I can show you all kinds of usage data off a network node, and I understand some of it because I had a company that did this type of thing in, in mobile networks, but most of the people that look at it won't even know what it means. So transparency doesn't do dick. It just sounds good. But to tell ISPs you can't adjust your performance without asking us how and how much from when to where is ridiculous because that's how networks work. And if you've ever, you know, if you talk to a network administrator that works for a large multi-campus company that has connections between the campus, and then each campus has its own network on it, and you ask, do you do this type of thing with your network? They're going to tell you, of course we do. And if you ask them why, they'll be like, so that everybody's network connection works all the time, as best that it can. That's what's necessary. All right. Now, the last one: no paid prioritization. Simply put, and I'm back in the president's letter, no service should be stuck in slow in a slow lane because it does not pay a fee. 
That kind of gatekeeping would undermine the level of playing field essential to the Internet's growth. So as I have before, I am asking for an explicit ban on paid prioritization and any other restriction that has a similar effect. This is a false albatross is what this is. So basically what I'm saying, so go back to my thing. So you're streaming Netflix, and you're getting Netflix delivered to your house, and you're watching your movie while I search Google. And you start to be throttled back, right? <laughs> See, if you don't have throttling, this doesn't matter, okay? But basically, what Comcast might do is release their own streaming video service and put Netflix in a slow lane. So they just restrict their bot bandwidth all the time. So when I get on a Netflix, I get worse performance than, let's say, Comcast on-demand video, even though it's an on-demand video service across the Internet, they should work about the same because they've given their own product priority. Or somebody else comes in with a product. Let's say Hulu is competing with, uh, with uh, I don't know, a paid YouTube service. And YouTube, Google, ponies up money and says, give our people priority. And then when there's two people competing for that bandwidth, they make sure that the people using YouTube stay in the fast lane and then the people that are going to Hulu are in the slow lane. Um, this doesn't really happen. And it's not really how things work, and all of this stuff is really taken care of already. And here's why. You as an ISP customer are paying for a certain amount of bandwidth to your house. And that number is not what you're told it is. If you read the terms and conditions, you'll see a minimum level of service uh, guarantee and a certain amount of uptime guarantee, and that's what you're actually paying for that. Uh, YouTube's bill for bandwidth is immense, and it's all about the pipes out And my bill is big for the Survival Podcast. Um, about $600, $700 a month I pay just for the server that runs the show because when you're you know, giving out terabytes of data to multiple points, my box has to be capable of thousands of you pinging 145 meg file at the exact same time. So I have this great big giant pipe out. That's where the issue is. Not in your last mile. And I'm not going to go... So I would pay Comcast to make sure that their customers get priority access to my device. This thing kind of thing could happen. But if companies do it in a way that actually adversely affects the performance of their customers, their customers are going to go elsewhere. And there's very few places where customers really only have one choice for Internet access. There's a few. But there's less and less of it. If the government was really concerned about this, they would be doing all they can to improve high-speed Internet access capabilities, to deregulate the environment with true deregulation, not fake deregulation, and let as many players as possible get in this business. That's how you would get this to work, to give the people more choices, to broaden the market, not to tell the people that are actually doing it well that you know better. And in the end, the big problem is this. Well, there's two. The first problem is you have people in government trying to regulate something they do not comprehend. And it's way worse than guns. Because they don't understand guns. They say stupid shit like, no one needs a Glock 19 because no one needs 19 shots. Yes. And they say stupid shit like, well, if we outlaw these magazines that are high capacity, even if we grandfather the old ones, once they shoot them, they won't have them anymore. Yes, yes, yes. They're stupid with guns. But they're really, 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 really beyond stupid here. These people have no idea of 10% of what I know about networks, and I am not qualified to jack around in these networks and tell these people how to run their own networks. Yes, there is some potential for abuse. 
But if you get the hell out of the way, the market will take care of itself. Now, here's the next problem. This is the big, big problem. So if the government does this, it's not like they can just pass these laws and say, okay, now it's done. No, they'll have to have a governing body that oversees this. And when they do that, they'll have to have money to pay the people that do the job that they don't understand. So they'll have to go out and hire people for all these high-paid government positions to quote-unquote create jobs, which is not creating jobs. It's creating a parasite on the American people and American business. And then that entity, that new organization, the Organization for Internet Oversight, would be the OIS, right? Organization for Internet Oversight, or the FOICE, the Federal Organization for Internet Oversight, whatever, right? So... <laughs> Once that entity exists, what does it become? It becomes a body of government with power, with appointed executives and hired on people, who will then begin to create more legislation and more regulation, a regulation, and tell these people exactly how to do what they're doing. And it will lead to greater and greater control of the Internet. And how do you know that's not just some Rush Limbaugh, right-wing, talking point government can't do anything right? Because history says so. That was what our history segment was about today. You give a government entity power, and it will grow and increase its power with the initial power that you give it. And we don't need the government exhorting any power at all, infinity, never, over the Internet. It is the one place left where we are in control. And if we don't like our ISP, then damn well, get, we'll get another one. And if you really want to help, get the hell out of the way. But, again, getting all wound up over this with Obama's plan is pointless. Because he can't do it with an executive order. He can't get it done with what's left of the congressional session. And it ain't going to happen with a Republican Congress. The Republicans probably want to empower these ISPs to be abusive versus restrict them and make them perform poorly. So, yeah, both sides' plan sucks. But this one really, really sucks. The best plan is what the caller said. Don't do anything. How many of you are really unhappy with your internet service? Just saying. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Russ from Buckley Bay, British Columbia, Canada. I'd just like to get your thoughts on the upcoming vote the Swiss referendum on gold um, what this will play on the market um, what you think will happen if the Swiss do decide to go back to a gold standard and how that will affect gold prices globally thanks Jack have a great day Uh, remember the old saying, what we have here is a failure to communicate. It sort of kind of applies here. See, uh, the question was going well right up until what I knew was going to be said was going to be said. And that is, if the Swiss go back to a gold standard. So on the 30th of November and they vote in Switzerland, will they be voting on going back to a gold standard? Not really. Let me tell you what they're going to do. This is from the Daily Reckoning by... Former Congressman Ron Paul, so you know you can trust the information. On November the 30th, voters in Switzerland will head to the polls to vote in a referendum on gold. On the ballot is a measure to prohibit the Swiss National Bank from further gold sales 
to repatriate Swiss own gold to Switzerland and to mandate that gold make up at least 20% of the SNB's assets. So holding rate there, it's not a gold standard. A gold standard would be the money's backed by gold. The stand that what they're talking about is a 20% standard. So, and it's not even of all the money, it's all the assets. So when we look on the balance sheet and the Swiss bank says, here's all our assets, well, 20% of them better be gold. That's what they're voting on. Let me keep going in the article. Arising from popular sentiment similar to the movements in the United States, Germany, and the Netherlands, this referendum is an attempt to bring more oversight and accountability to the Swiss National Bank, Switzerland's central bank. This Swiss referendum is driven by an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with the conduct not only of a Swiss monetary policy, but of a Swiss banking policy. Switzerland may be a small nation, but is a nation proud of its independence and its history and standing up to tyranny. The famous legend of William Tell embodies the essence of the Swiss national character. But no tyrannical regime in history has bullied Switzerland as much as the United States government has in recent years. The Swiss tradition of bank secrecy is legendary. The reality, however, is the Swiss bank, bank secrecy is dead. Countries such as the United States have been unwilling to keep government spending in check, but they are running out of ways to fund that spending. Further ta taxation of their population is politically difficult. Massive insurance of government debt has saturated bond markets. So the easy target is smaller countries such as Switzerland, which have gained a reputation for being tax havens. Remember that tax haven is just a term for a country that allows people to keep more of their own money than the U.S. or EU does and doesn't attempt to plunder either its citizens or its foreign account holders. But the past several years have seen a consorted attempt by the U.S. and EU to crack down on these smaller countries using their enormous financial clout to compel them to hand over account details so they can extract more tax revenue. The U.S. has its court system extort money from Switzerland, fining U.S. subsidiaries of Swiss banks for allegedly sheltering U.S. taxpayers and allowing them to keep their, their accounts and earnings hidden from U.S. tax authorities. EU countries such as Germany have gone so far as to purchase account information stolen from Swiss banks by unscrupulous bank employees. And with the recent implementation of the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, FACTA, Swiss banks will now be forced to divulge to the IRS all the information they have about a customer liable to pay U.S. taxes. On the monetary policy front, the Swiss National Bank sold about 60% of Switzerland's gold reserves during the 2000s. The SNB has also in recent years established a currency peg with 1.2 Swiss francs equal to 1 euro. The peg effects have already manifested themselves in the form of a growing real estate bubble as housing pricing have risen dangerously. Given the action by the European Central Bank to engage in further quantitative easing, the SMB's continuance of this dangerous foolhardy policy means that it will continue tying its monetary policy to that of the EU and be forced to import more inflation into Switzerland. Just like the U.S. and the EU, Switzerland at the federal level is ruled by a group of elites who are more concerned with their own status, well-being, and international reputation than with the good of the country. The gold referendum, if it is successful, will be a slap in the face to those elites. The Swiss people appreciate the work their forefathers put into building up large gold reserves and respected currency and a strong independent banking system. They do not want to see centuries of struggle squandered by a central bank that results in the, Nove the results of the November refer re referendum may be a bellwether indicating just how strong popular movements can be in establishing central bank accountability and returning gold to a monetary role. Regards, Ron Paul. I love Ron Paul, but Ron Paul believes in the gold god. 
right? Not religiously, but if we just had gold, it would all be okay. Gold can be a useful tool here in Switzerland with this referendum. What the Swiss bank's been doing, saying, gee, we have a shitload of gold. Maybe if we sold it and made it into money, we'll use that money to make more money. And then they went and got really stupid and pegged the Swiss franc to the euro at 1.2 to 1. So, in effect, every time the EU does something to create inflation in the euro, they're creating it in the Swiss franc, when the whole reason Switzerland stayed out of the euro was so that wouldn't happen. But the oligarchs in Switzerland and Europe are the same as the oligarchs here. Most of them are the same freaking people and the same freaking families, and they want to play the same money game. Where Switzerland has traditionally been a safe haven. Now, the big question here was how will it affect the markets? Not jack diddly shit. Switzerland's not as big as people make it out to be. And something like this, if it really hurts anybody, will hurt the EU. Because it will be a further decoupling of Swiss, the Switzerland economy from the EU-based economy. So it could have more detrimental effects in Europe than it will have here, but it won't really affect you that much at all. It will be a bellwether, as Ron puts it, though, for many of those in power in the central banks that, hey, you know what, sometimes countries say tough shit, you're not allowed to do this anymore. The reality, though, is this. The days of the gold standard are done. They're done. And the oligarchs were able to manipulate currency and control people with gold. And then they were able to do it with fiat currencies. And then they were able to do it with debt-backed currencies. And nothing changes if you change the backing of the currency in reality. You can put a leash on the dog, but the dog is still a dog. And the dog can still turn around and rip your throat out. That's the oligarchs. Just because you put a leash on them, yeah, now we're going to control them. No, they can still tear you apart. The only way to control the oligarchs is how you control a dog like that that wants to tear you apart. You either put them in a cage or you put them down. Those are the two ways. A leash doesn't work. You understand that? You cannot control a dog that wants to eat you with a leash that you're holding. That's the oligarchs. So this is a step. It's a step toward greater national sovereignty for Switzerland, but it won't work, and they'll just adapt to it. What I think you're going to see out of Switzerland is cryptocurrency, backed by the Swiss government, not by the Swiss central bank. And I think you'll see that within two years. And I think once Switzerland does it, all bets are off. I think you'll see every nation out there, especially small nations doing it. I think it will be done in the format similar to Bitcoin, And it will make international banking extremely easy for anyone to do. And it will make it almost impossible for any government to say, Thou shalt not bank in Switzerland without telling us everything thou art doing. Because what Switzerland will say is, they don't have a bank account. They just are holding some Swiss coin. Got it? Now, how would one, just think about the natural evolution of things. See, I like to think about the natural evolution of things. Where do they go from here? So let's say I'm Switzerland, and I want to regain the, the days of glory. When small, wealthy people, when I say small, I mean people worth a couple million bucks, said, you know what, I'm going to go put a half a million dollars in the Swiss bank, and they're going to pay me a great interest rate. I'm going to shelter from the taxes. My government won't know jack shit about it. There's nothing they can do, and it will all be safe over there in Switzerland because those guys are cool. How do we get that back? If I don't have the money in a bank, how can I pay interest? How can I pay interest to a person holding Swiss coin without a bank account? Why can't I build interest into the system? 
including a flexible interest rate like banks have always done, like national banks have always done. Notice they said national, not central. So Switzerland may establish, and I'm not saying they will, they are going to do a cryptocurrency, but if they wanted to, they could create a, the, the National Bank of Switzerland, and you don't have to have an account there, you just have to hold Swiss currency, Swiss coin, or whatever they call it, ski coin, I don't care what, and they could even create it in classes, Like shares, like A shares, B shares, etc. If you buy a certain class of share, it accrues interest. Now, it might require, and you could build right into the algorithm, that if you buy this class of shares, you must hold it for X period of time before you spend it in order to earn the interest on it. And it's just like a bank account, but you don't have an account number. You just hold the coin. You can't do that. Okay, I won't. You see, instead of being stupid and saying to your government, I will hold ski coin and thou shalt not stop me. And they'll go, oh, really? Come in and step on your neck. They just go, thou shalt not do this. Okay. Okay. Right. See? And with virtual citizenships of real nations and virtual citizenships of virtual nations and real nations doing this and virtual nations, I would say real Physical nations doing this and virtual nations doing this. The world is about to explode for the oligarchs. They're, they're a, the, the world is about to be democratized with capitalism in a way that scares the shit out of these people. And they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. So they're going to fight to do what they've always done. They know that this system will be too... It'll be like the internet. That's why they want that neutrality. They want to control this. It's too late, guys. Sorry, you screwed up. You know, Al Gore, he invented it. Now, he didn't really invent it, but he, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't stop it now. You can't. It's too late. Well, that's what's happening with this concept of virtual nations and virtual currencies. So all this gold thing is, is a step to smack the oligarchs in the face a little bit. But if the government of Switzerland really wants to liberate its people and restore itself to the reputation that it has, which is what the U.S. was always supposed to be and never was, then that's how I would do it. With a national bank, not a central bank. And I would issue our currency, and I would say, if you want it, you can buy it, you can hold it, you can do what you wish with it. We do not care. That applies to our own citizens and all people within the world. We can't report the information to you, government of the United States or Europe, because we don't know who has it. It works just like Bitcoin. We're not quite sure. We have our people at CERN working on this, but we can't figure it out. As soon as we figure out who owns every one of them, we'll let you know. Bye-bye now. Somebody's got to do it. Why not Switzerland? We will see. But how will it affect the markets other than for a day or two when somebody makes a big deal out of it? Not really much at all. Let's take another call. Uh, next up, I have a question for an expert council member from me. I'm going to try to do more of this as I get a little organized as all this, this hump of activity is kind of petered out now and I'm going to have a little bit more breathing room toward the end of the year. Um, I have a question for expert council member Nicholas Ferguson. And my question for Nick Ferguson this week was the following. If I am going to buy a greenhouse or set up a greenhouse in the backyard of uh, a residential area or a small rural area for personal use primarily, maybe a tiny nursery there, but not really a big commercial nursery greenhouse, really to produce food and to produce plants and to produce trees, etc., for my own use, what are the five biggest considerations I should take into consideration when making my choice on a greenhouse? And this is personal for me right now because I'm doing exactly that. So 
It might help a lot of you as we go into winter and people think about greenhouses and you know starting plants early in the spring and stuff. What should you look for in a greenhouse for personal use or small-scale use? Nick Ferguson. Hey, TSB listeners, this is Nick from permacultureclassroom.com calling in with five considerations when building or buying a greenhouse for your backyard. Number five, quality. If you buy a cheap greenhouse, you're going to regret it. It's going to fall apart. You're going to have problems with it. So better quality will always be appreciated. If you have to make a choice between a small quality greenhouse and a larger but more cheaply made greenhouse, you will by far enjoy the quality structure much more than the hassles and problems of a cheap one. Number four, weather. Build or buy a greenhouse appropriate to your climate. Double layers for northern, possibly an earth-sheltered option. Earth-sheltered is also good for southern climates. Shade cloth, if you're in a southern climate or if you have some intense sun issues. Understand your climate strengths and weaknesses. Don't underestimate how hot that sun can get. Just because it's cold outside doesn't mean it's not dumping a lot of heat. Number three, size. Bigger is better. You will always feel cramped. Take the size you think you will want and increase it by 50%. You'll be shocked at how small they feel once you start growing in one. Go bigger if you can. Number two, water needs. Make sure you have reliable water. As much as possible, use rainwater. City water and very hard water like Jack has are very hard on plants. They make it difficult for the plant to grow and process nutrients so as much as possible, try to use rainwater, but more importantly is reliable water. So make sure you can get water out there every day because if you can't get running water with good pressure, you're going to run into problems with dead plants. Number one, the most important thing is ventilation. Greenhouses can get hot enough to pasteurize. 160 degrees is not healthy for plants. They will literally melt. Make sure you provide some form of automated ventilation. Those wax-based cylinders that open when they get hot, they're a pretty reliable tool. Um, a, a fan, an electric fan with a, a thermostat on it is a great thing to use. Um, you're not going to be able to get out there and take care of that greenhouse every day at the moment that its doors and windows need to be opened. So... I say as much as possible, try to make sure there's some form of automated ventilation because then you don't have to worry about it. It just takes care of itself. So I think that's it for now since I'm trying to keep this short and sweet. Thanks, Jack. Talk to you all later. So good stuff from Nick, as always. When you're looking for your greenhouse to summarize in uh, five bullet points, quality, weather appropriateness, size, bigger is better, water needs, and ventilation. With that, let's take another one of your calls. Hello, Jack. I hope you will take a moment to listen to this message. Making this call to you has been a dream of mine for four years. It is as much a thank you to you as it is a message for the audience. This is Eric from Scappoose, Oregon. Eleven years ago this week, my wife and I purchased a rough but solid home in the country on 4.6 acres. Since then, we've built a large shop, developed a garden, planted fruit trees, and generally put a lot of sweat equity into the house and property. A number of years back, I read Patriots Surviving the Coming Collapse by James Rawls. That book started to open my eyes, and I went searching for more information. 
you had at that time just published your Patriots book review, and if I remember correctly, that was in the double-digit episodes numbers. I have been a listener of the Survival Podcast ever since, as well as a current MSV member. After a year or so of listening, you started to get under my skin. I started to yearn for the freedom that being debt-free can bring. On January 1st, 2010, I decided I didn't like my mortgage, and I decided to get out from underneath it. I made a commitment to myself and started paying extra on the principal every month. This wasn't a scrape-together-every-last-dime effort. It was simply a plan to pay the extra loan principal before any other expenses. We still had fun. We acquired things we wanted as budgets allowed. All I did was make sure the extra principal came out of the monthly spending before anything else. This week, I had the opportunity to liquidate some stock. I walked into the bank I have visited every month for the past four years and handed them a stack of bills measured in inches. I paid off my mortgage in full, and I have my financial freedom. So for you, Jack, I offer you my most sincere thank you for nudging me in the right direction. And for the audience, Jack is 100% right. The revolution is you. I made the decision to pay off my mortgage early. I made the commitment to no one other than myself to do it. If you are envious of where I am at right now, the solution resides within you to be in this position as well. Not with Jack, not with your bank, maybe a little bit with your spouse, but if you want it, all you have to do is go and get it. The past four years of making these extra payments have gone quickly. Today, I walk on my land. Every stick, stone, and molehill is mine. All I had to do is decide that I wanted to do it. Thank you, Jack. Bye-bye. I don't have much to add. Um, I think it fits nicely with the discussion we had earlier uh, that uh, came right after I played the clip from Gary Vaynerchuk for you, and it's an example of exactly how you apply these things. You choose what you want, and you take it. You choose what you want, and you take it. I do want to say something, because I know there's this segment of the audience that you know, is about half of 1% that always pops up about the land ownership thing, and I know what you're going to say, and you just annoy the shit out of me, so I'm going to just quash it dead right here. You don't really own your land because they tax your land, and as long as somebody can tax your land, they take it away from you, and you're just renting your land. And you know who you are? You're the person that will never do or own jack shit. That's who you are. You're making an excuse for why you can't do what somebody else did. I, I, I grow so weary of that objection. Well, then you don't own your car because you have to put gas in it and you pay tax on your gas. And you don't own your ass because you have to buy toilet paper to wipe it. I, I mean, I don't get people. I Actually, I do. I totally get it. That's why it makes me angry. It makes me angry because I just want to say something stupid to make an excuse for myself and, and say that what somebody else did didn't really matter. Well, you know what? This guy did mattered. It is his place. He owns it. And, yeah, the government taxes property, and that's wrong. But there's a lot of things that the government does that's wrong. But the revolution is you. The revolution is not a group of people. It's not a political action committee. You're not going to make it happen by voting for one ass clown over the other. You're going to make it happen with what you do in your life. I am so proud of this guy. I hope someday, sir, to sit down and drink a beer with you to your freedom and to your real ownership of your real property. Um, there could not have been a better gift for me on a Friday afternoon than to hear from somebody with what you had to say. Thank you. The revolution is you. Please continue to kick ass and take names. Let's take one more call, and uh, this is going to be a good one to wrap the day with. 
Hi, Jack. How can thoughtless, quote-unquote, sheeple become astute and calculated citizens? I ask because I myself have been moving out of mindless living for the last two years, in large part thanks to your podcast. I have many of my affairs in order on multiple fronts, and my family is on board. As much as that physical preparation is necessary, the mental acuity seems so much more important. I have a lot of questions and uncertainty because my BS meter is not well-tuned when being spoon-fed lies from the establishment media, and I also have an innate fear of the powers that be. I don't want to feel chained to the pressures of form a single-file line, be quiet, and do as you're told. I want to teach those I care about how to see the big picture and not get caught up in the chatter. What do you suggest as good ways to do this? Thanks for your thoughts, Jack. You know, in society, we have come to this point where we have felt the need that, that those of us who are awake need to be sheepdogs and take care of the sheep. I think there's a, a place to be the sheepdog. I get that. I understand that. That's why I served in the military. It's why if I was walking down the street right now and observed somebody attacking somebody else, I would step in and intervene. That's the sheepdog in me. But do you know that the sheepdog is nothing but a domesticated wolf? And it is the wolf and the sheepdog that makes the sheepdog capable of defending the sheep. I want you to think about that for a minute. Cause I'm about to say something that if you don't really understand that, You could take it the wrong way and not understand it. I posted this picture on Facebook, and most of the people didn't get it. I said there's two ways to take this. One of them's really cool. Most people that took a swung at, swing at it didn't get it either way. But it's a picture of a wolf, and I've always had a affinity for the wolf. And it says the following. Wolves don't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. Think about that. Wolves do not lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. There's one way that's very disempowering, unless you understand that it leads to your own power, and that is to realize the people that run your country are a pack of wolves, and to them you are the sheep, and you are to be preyed upon. Uh, they're more like milking farmers, though, that just continuously milk you until you're ready to be put out to pasture and then slaughter you. And they don't care about your opinion. Because your opinion doesn't really matter. They'll let you have it. They'll, they'll even tell you that it's important, but they don't give a rat's ass about your opinion. But if you believe that your only choice is sheep or sheepdog, then you exist only between the wolves and the sheep. The sheepdog is also a wolf. The sheepdog is also a wolf. And dogs, dogs have this relationship with human beings, right, that... They protect and they serve, sheepdog style. But your dog's a wolf. Your dog's just a wolf that has decided that you are part of his pack. And just as the dog is a dog and yet still a wolf, you are a person and yet you can be the wolf too. And here's the thing about the sheepdog, even the sheepdog. It is the wolf in him that cares not for the opinion of the sheep. He simply protects them. When they don't want to go somewhere, he nips at their heels and he sends them on their way and he doesn't care that they don't like him. And he doesn't try to tell the sheep that they need to turn into sheepdogs. He's just the wolf that's chosen to serve the capacity for the protection of the sheep. Given the opportunity, he will pack up either with other humans or other dogs. And in the end, he'll be the wolf 
and he'll care not for the opinions of those not in his pack. If you want to separate yourself from the sheep, then you have to care not for the opinions of sheep. And you have to not try to make them become wolves. That does not mean that you turn on them. You keep enough sheepdog in you with that wolf pack attitude to defend them. But you care not for their opinions. And in this metaphor, the sheep can itself become a wolf any time that it chooses. And it does so not because it's asked to. Not because it's conjoled to. But because it becomes sick and tired of being preyed upon by one pack of wolves and then sees this other pack that says, I've got a better way. I don't really give a shit if you follow me or not. But here's what I'm doing. And when that sheep for the first time says to itself, how do I stop being a sheep? It's done already. That's kind of this weird metamorphosis. It's now a sheepdog-wolf thing, but it has all this mental connection back to the collective. And it has to seed through that package. But it will never, it's been severed from the Matrix. It will never go back. For those of you that are Star Trek fans, especially with the, 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 la- the latest one, or the, not the latest one produced, but the latest in time, the uh, one, what was it, Voyager. There's seven of nine. They've been restored to free thinking, yet they have this baggage. And that's where you are at. You are a, a person that's woken up and realized, I was never a sheep. I just acted like one. A wolf. Part of a pack. Part of free thinking beings called humans. But you're struggling with, but, but, I was always... Care not for the opinions of sheep. I can care not for your opinion and still care for your safety. I can care not for your opinion and still see your protection. That's what a good cop is supposed to do, by the way. A good cop is the cop that, you know what, you flip him off and call him a pig, and five minutes later some guy jumps you and he runs over, thumps him on the head and arrests the guy that assaulted you. Because his job is to enforce the law and to protect and serve, even those he doesn't agree with or doesn't like. That's how you have to be. And then, so your BS meter's not finely tuned yet. Well, I have an episode for you called Fine-Tuning Your BS Meter. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But here's how you start out. Assume, assume that everything that you're told by the mainstream is bullshit, and some of it is and some of it, but just assume, start out with the assumption that it's bullshit. And then figure out what's the truth. That right there does a lot. But the other thing is, if it comes from a politician, it is bullshit, Period. It's bullshit, even if it sounds good, even if the premise is true. The intent is bullshit. No one in power ever does anything, ever, to weaken their own power. Therefore, anything they say is for one sole goal, to increase and entrench them in their power, to either move them up or consolidate more power or get more power. They are wolves as well. But here's the big secret. They're imposter wolves. They need 
the sheep. They need the sheep to pay attention to them. They need the sheep to argue with other sheep about which one of them is the better wolf. They need the sheep. They can't exist without the sheep. The sheep pay them a tribute so that they won't be eaten. The sheep choose one evil wolf over the other and fight and flail with hooves at their fellow sheep. The sheep fight for the wolf in this system. And that's not a real wolf. The real wolf, you, must care not about the opinion of the sheep. You align yourself with those who think the way you do. And you take shit. You take it. You seize it. You make it your own. You do not capitulate. In the wolf pack, there is an alpha. An alpha male and an alpha female. There's an omega. There's a low pecking order wolf. The lowest in the pack. And they all know who and what they are. But let an outsider come in and attack the Omega. You know what happens. The Alpha will tear out the throat of the attacker. And if the attacker is a pseudo-wolf, fake sheepdog, or even a brave sheep, it doesn't matter. The Alpha will risk life and limb to defend the Omega. Not because the Alpha is a sheepdog but because the Omega is a fellow member of the pack. You want a republic. You need a nation of wolves that behave like wolves. And you need to not believe the things that are said about being a wolf that are untrue. The wolves are somehow inherently evil and murderous. The wolf does that which is necessary for its sustainability and nothing more. It is not the wolf that wiped out the bison. It was man. Think about that. It's only a metaphor. You can only take it so far. But if you are to be a wolf, you must not care for the opinion of sheep. You must care only for the safety, security, and sustainability of your fellow wolves. And it is not selfish. And it is not turning your back on the masses. And it is not stealing from them because you cannot defend them if you are one of them. No sheepdog is worth a damn unless there's a wolf inside of him. Because he has to fight wolves. I know it sounds pretty deep, but it's true. If you want to separate yourself from the flock, then you have to stop being a sheep. And you don't look for a happy medium. You become a natural predator. You prey on the deserving. Wolves are cunning. They understand maneuvers like flanking and driving. They understand where their territory ends and they know to operate within the strength of their territory. The wolf knows his circle of influence and focuses on that to the exclusion of the sound of another wolf howling across the ridge far outside of his territory. The wolf 
is the model. Become the wolf and care not for the opinion of the sheep. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Revolution is you